the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and I'm honored to have a special guest, Brad Jursak. Brad is the as an author and a teacher. He's based in British Columbia, and he is the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. Um, his books include A More Christ-Like God, and the subtitle is A More Beautiful Gospel, also A More Christ-Like Word, Reading Scripture the Emmaus Way, and his most recent book is Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you. I'm very excited to have you today. We first met 10 or 11 years ago at the premiere screening of uh, Hellbound in Seattle. It wasn't the very first one, but you, you, would, you went on a tour with Kevin Miller and you went to a lot of cities, including Seattle. And I had the privilege of being the host, uh, introducing that film to the audience uh, that was part of the Seattle Film Festival. And um, never forget, you were uh, uh, one of the key interviewees in that film and used a lot of material. You used a lot of material from your book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, to help debunk some of the traditional myths about hell. So I became an instant fan of yours back then. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and. Uh, I also had fond rem- memories of you and uh, the producer, Kevin Miller, and another gentleman, who the name escapes me. We all went out for a beer afterwards, so that was fun. Yeah, that um, was a good night. Yeah. It was so, really, really fun to be with you. Yeah, and it's been way too long to uh, talk with you since then, so I'm so glad you're here. Um, so we want to talk about your latest book, um, which a lot of people, it's Out of the Embers. Um, faith after the great deconstruction and a lot of people have said it's kind of much more than they expect it for a book about uh rebuilding faith after deconstructing conservative christianity but i it's got a lot of great rich material and and um history in the book i think i the really one of the things i really like is some of the lessons that you ta- uh, learned or and as you research some of the great historical deconstructionists uh, down through uh, history. And I'd like to talk about some of that today. So sure. I think to begin, though, let's give our listeners some context. Um, you know, what, what what's your own experience deconstructing from evangelicalism? And I think you had, you described it as kind of like a traumatic aftermath. 
what, what was that all about? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'll just say that my concept of deconstruction would be actually much bigger than just deconstructing from conservative evangelicalism, but that was part of my experience. Right. But I would say every construct of faith requires interrogation. So I'm meeting, I'm meeting Muslims from Iran that are deconstructing elements of their faith. Right. I'm meeting, I'm meeting agnostics who are deconstructing their construct. I'm even deconstructionists who are deconstructing deconstruction. So the, the essence though is we all have constructs and the freedom to question those carefully is what I'm about. My experience then in, was twofold. In the book, what I say is that there's a range of experiences that go all the way from liberating to quite traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced both in these ways. So first of all, <clears throat> deconstructing a theology where God is retributive, where he demands appeasement of his wrath through violence, where he condemns uh, the damned to eternal conscious torment in a yeah. lake of fire. To deconstruct that was liberating for me. Because what it, those were obstacles to faith. They were obstacles to intimacy with God and trusting in him. Right. And so as each of those things tumbled, I just really experienced um, new freedom and a more beautiful image of God that I'm excited to share. However, um, not all deconstruction is simply theological. So in 2008, I went through an experience in our in our little church where we had tragedy after tragedy begin to pile up. And I ran into the problem of evil. I ran into the problem of suffering. And I came to a place where I was so overwhelmed that I, that I began to, to, uh, to have disordered responses and addictive responses. And I, I became a mess. I, I had a meltdown. Right. And I'm like, I don't know if I trust God. So that wasn't about, deconstructing conservative faith so much as like before God, I expected him to be good, but he wasn't being good in a way that I was demanding. Right. What <laughs> your expectations was, were. Yeah. Yeah. I was really not sure if I could trust him anymore. And that was, that was traumatizing because I've never right. not loved and trusted him. Right. So I've been rebuilding since then on better foundations, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. I mean, you, there, there are two parts of deconstruction because, um, I mean, it can be so liberating. Um, and because there's always, at least in my experience, I was in the evangelical movement for 25 years and there's all these red flags that go up. That, wait, how can that be? How can that be? And you kind of shelve them or you, you're afraid to talk about them because most, most churches, at least in my experience, you can ask questions, but they have to be very safe questions, and you have to accept the first answer. <laughs> you can't. You can't. That's not good enough for me. You can't say that. So, so anyways, and then there's the then there's the whole trauma of well, well, what now? What do I do? What do, what in the world do I believe really? And and because you get into all kinds of things like the like you mentioned the problem of evil or just you know you know. You know the historicity of Jesus or the fidelity of Scripture and all this other stuff that you kind of have to iron out. So I, I can I can understand that. So one of the things that that you talk about is um, what, there are benefits and there are dangers of deconstruction. 
what 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 are what are those two things? What why would why would anyone want to deconstruct number one? But what do they have to be wary of? Yeah. So first of all, I'm not sure how voluntary it is anyway. <laughs> so for some people, it is. It's like you can deliberately look at what you need to jettison. But for many people, deconstruction is just normal development. Like they, we outgrow what we were wearing before in terms of our worldview. Yeah. Um, or we become disoriented through life circumstances that we couldn't control. So there's, there can be an involuntary element to it. And, and in the midst of that, so the possibilities around that are great because you could end up having a wider view of the world, a more beautiful image of God. Mm -hmm. uh, you could be loosed from kind of the, the chains that bind us to, to um, constriction of, of, of religious systems. And so, so in that part, the the best possibility is that we're, to quote Hebrews 12, that we're setting aside encumbrances so that we can run the race and fix our eyes on Jesus, a more beautiful image of Jesus. Um, the perils of this, uh, there's a few. One is um, in escaping, let's say you, you escape a, a toxic religious system. Right. Um, or maybe even become an outcast of that. And by mm -hmm. the way, that never happened to me. When I was deconstructing, my church community surrounded me and they walked with me and they were healers. Wow. For me. So that I didn't know that. Very fortunate. Most people yeah. don't have that experience. That's really true. <clears throat> um, so the, the peril then is if you move out of a community, even a toxic one, mm -hmm. you can end up moving into alienation. Right. And and although since I wrote the book, I found out a lot of folks have said, no, I was already in experiencing alienation in my community. That's yeah. partly why I left. But but I think that that deconstruction is is such a heart surgery that you don't want to do it on your own or do it to yourself. You, you want to have people that you can trust who will take care of you and and listen to your questions without condemning you. And so. So that would be the biggest peril. It's, but it's also just a fact. It's like you may end up finding yourself alienated, and then the, the task is, how do we walk through that peril? It's like, right. well, we begin to find safe people who we can deconstruct with, where we're not just feeding each other cynicism, yeah, or encouraging one another to burn down everything in our faith. And the worst part would be, I think, for folks who are like, no, I'm even walking away from the person of Jesus now. Right. I'm like, didn't you meet him? And like, that's the problem. We didn't, we were in a church right. all our lives and we never had an encounter with, with yeah. the living Christ. How can I have that? And so right. that's partly where I go in the book. Yeah, you know, that makes perfect sense. But we, you, you talked about, you know, some people don't have a choice. I think I always say that, a lot of a lot of times people don't deconstruct until something very emotional or very painful happens in their life. And there's like they're just like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to handle this? And, you know, they go through spiritual abuse. The church, I don't know, puts them under church discipline or they find out, you know, that something about what's going on behind the scenes and they have to deal with it. So they start deconstructing. And then once you start deconstructing one thing, typically another thing pops up and then you start going down this road. So. Um, but yeah, the community having a community is key. Um, finding people to deconstruct with, and and I think the other side of it is um, is and and I talk about this in in some of my workshops. You know, there's a um, 
there's a progression and deconstruction. There are stages, right? And 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 we have to let people go through those stages. And sometimes those stages include, you know, going swinging the pendulum all the way over and rejecting almost everything. And uh, I have friends like that, you know, they kind of throw out the, almost everything. And, and I'm not there, but they're there. But I understand exactly why they're doing it. Yeah. You know? It makes sense to me. So I don't judge them for that. I just say, hey, you know, there is another way to look at it over here and just, you know, keep talking about, you know, some of the reasons that maybe I still hold on to my faith and how and the history of the Jesus movement in the first century, et cetera. But but yeah, yeah those are really um, good points uh, people need to be aware of when they deconstruct. So, you know, there's a there's a huge movement in this. Um, I mean, when I started this 15 years ago, I thought I was the only one, you know, <laughs> then I brought picked up a Brian McLaren book. And then you're like, oh, there are other people like that. And then before yeah. you know it, I'm going to the Hellbound movie and meeting people like you. And it, it just it just goes on and on. But um, you say some things about, you know, uh, the way deconstruction kind of like is kind of a move, almost like a movement today, which is a good thing, I think. But there are maybe some some cautions to it. You say some things in support of it, and you say some things in critique of it. What what are those about? Um, yeah. So first of all, I would say deconstruction is the Judeo Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. You've got Moses burning down a golden calf. You've got Micah the prophet um, speaking to the powers of the government and the temple establishment. You've got Jesus saying, look, you've got to be born again. I mean, this is deconstruction language. Then in the fourth century, you've got the Cappadocian fathers saying, your constructs of God are not God. In fact, if you if you make them God, they're an idol. We need to, mm -hmm. we need to engage the God beyond our constructs. So they're doing the same thing. St. John of the Cross, Spanish mystic, dark night of the soul. That's right. describing a deconstruction process. So, so the first thing I want to say is I, I am in support of, of critiquing our constructs because it is the Jewish and Christian tradition. And, and, it, and if we're not doing that, we're probably not even conservative. <laughs> you know, I want to conserve okay. that part of the tradition. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, right. Instead of just being, you know, uh, black and white thinking modernists, that's not Christianity. And, and of course, we may talk about it later, but this is what Kierkegaard was, was saying as well. And so we've got these great 19th century deconstructionists. So I'm all for that. Where I, where I think we need to get is that we also deconstruct deconstruction. When it becomes a movement, it has become a construct, and then you have to interrogate it. Yeah. Those who aren't willing to do that mm -hmm. um, are doing a... Um, a half-baked job of deconstruction. If you can't be self-critical of your own movement, you're not even really doing the work anymore. So um, I would say the, the, the biggest peril there, the, my biggest challenge to the pop deconstructionists today is that they tend to be cheerleaders and I critique them for waving pom-poms and, and being arsonists of other people's faith. Yeah, just burn it all down and and uh, walk away from everything. And, and that's what we need to just take a bulldozer over the whole lot. It, there's nothing of value. And like, you know what? You're, you're, you're dealing with people's hearts here. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and you you don't that's that's irresponsible if if so my experience of that is as I'm watching the pop deconstructionists do their cheerleading on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, unself-critical way, I'm getting direct messages from people saying, I've deconstructed, but I'm now bereft. I didn't, I lost more than I meant to. I lost my community. I lost my faith. I've even lost all reason to live. Mm. And these guys sound like evangelicals who want me to have a good testimony. And I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness, they're still evangelical, aren't they? I mean, not in the sense of their doctrine, but in the practice of yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Being evangelistic. It, yeah. Yeah. So my thing is, instead of that, what we need to do is come with empathy, and we listen to every story, wherever they are, in their stage, and we dignify the emotions they're having, and we walk with them. Um, without without being heavy-handed in here's what you got to do. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So there's so many things going on here. You've got you've got um, people deconstruct in, in, in different um, time timelines. Uh, so you know the, these these uh, I think you call them pop deconstructionists. Maybe they're they've already gone the whole gamut and they're going we're burning the whole thing down and you got to join us. And other people are going, wait a minute, I'm just getting started. And what the heck are you talking about? You know, and there's no empathy for those people. And you you have, to, you have to go, hey, wait a minute, you late deconstructionists, you used to be in that situation. Why don't you have empathy for them? You know, so and then that means maybe they're not the ones who are done. Right. So you're at stage two in a seven stage journey and you think you're a guru now? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're still going along their their own their own process. So, um, yeah, that, that's so true. People ha have their own rates of deconstruction and we have to um, have have uh, some patience with people. And, and, and it works both ways. The early deconstructionists are kind of going, oh, my God, you can deconstruct that. I I'm I, I, I can't do that. That's that's not, you know that blows up their world. And yeah. then the late deconstructionists are kind of criticizing people who haven't come along and all these other issues or whatever. So yeah, empathy definitely called for, or, or else we, we just were actually the, the, you can become fundamentalism can raise its ugly head anywhere. So yes. it can even be an atheists and agnostics and people just all of a sudden, or, you know, hyper deconstructionists, if you call them that, Hey, they've got all the answers now, and you better line up. And well, that's exactly what fundamentalism is. is. So, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I also like what you said about. I mean, the, the thing that really, uh, one of the things that impacted me is like, wait a minute, deconstruction is not new. I mean, come on, this is exactly what the Jewish faith was doing. The whole stories of the Old Testament, we got people, the prophets are all of a sudden they're deconstructing the sacrificial system. They are yep. they are really laying into the the traditional religion and viewpoint of the day. You got Jesus and Paul deconstructing Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's what they were doing. So this is nothing new. And and I love what you say, like this is what we should be doing because there is a tradition of of questioning always questioning the jewish people were always questioning things and and that's and then and that's how the faith evolved so um 
But you also give a lot of examples in your book about um, uh, some of the deconstructionists of the, the 19th century. Um, and I wanted to you to share some of that because I think that was really good material. I mean, why should we care about some of these people like um, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and I can't even say his name, Dostoevsky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why should we care about these people? What, what are they saying to us today? Yeah, so remember earlier I was talking about, let's say someone thinks they're a guru of deconstruction, but they've only walked through a couple of, this, of many phases. Well, now in hindsight, we can see the people who took it as far as it can go. Yeah. <laughs> and who, came, who um, not only um, modeled a kind of healthy deconstruction, but the fact that they're still in print centuries later tells you that they saw something that has resonated Right. And part of what they saw is where things would go. So in, in that way, they're not just speaking from the 18th century. They're speaking from 50 years forward from us. Right. Who would know how this is going to turn out? They do because they lived it. They saw it. They described it. And we're just recycling some things there. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, uh, Voltaire was very, very critical, maybe more critical of the church than anyone in his century. He, I call him a beloved frenemy. Um, you have this with Nietzsche too in the in the 19th century. So these aren't these two guys. They're not proponents of Christianity, but right. they were critics of the corruption mm -hmm. that they could pinpoint and the ways that that was toxic for the population. Mm -hmm. And their critiques are even more valid today. And but their critique also then both of them, they extend the critique then to begin to critique the critics and those who become cynical mm -hmm. and through their cynicism have become fundamentalists who are intolerant of faith in the name of tolerance. Yeah, like, right, right. Wow, does that feel familiar, right? Yeah, right. On the positive side, you've got guys like Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard, and, and why they're positive is their critiques of the Christianity were every bit as devastating as mm -hmm. Voltaire and Nietzsche, right. but they didn't walk away from Jesus. Yeah. And in fact, they said the, the deeper deconstruction will lead you to, to try on following Jesus. If you want something thorough and rigorous, uh, pick up a cross and carry it for a while, you know. So, mm. um, and then they, and then they, all of those, all of those, then they give us warnings. They're like, if you, if you just let your deconstruction descend down into nihilism, that means belief mm. in, that all of life is meaningless. You're not designed to live that way, and so in that vacuum. The ridiculous strong men, fascists, will come along and offer you meaning where you feel meaningless, and suddenly you've got populism. And yes. then comes the Bolshevik Revolution, right. becomes MAGA Christianity, yes. becomes yeah. Putinism. I mean, mm -hmm. all of that. That's what happens if if you if you're deep. And so, what do we do instead of that? And they tell us. Um, so that I, I want I want to pay attention to what they tell us. Well, what, what would Kierkegaard or, or the D guy say? <laughs> uh, so for for the D guy, Dostoevsky, it is tricky to say, but the characters in his book are even harder to say because it's all <laughs> Russians. 
Um, so what Dostoevsky does across all of his works, it, um, what I called empathy, um, we can also call co-suffering. That's actually what compassion means, calm, passion, co-suffering love. Mm-hmm means walking alongside the, those who are broken and disoriented and showing them compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. He actually thinks that, that that alone is what transforms other individuals and, and whole societies. What, what if the cross-shaped compassion on the ground does far more to as a response, not only to deconstruction, but to injustice in the world, to oppression in the world. Yeah. So you start there. In, in um, Kierkegaard's case, he he just said, similar to Nietzsche, he said that, that the churches have lost the felt presence of God. It's just become a social institution yeah. where you go to parade around and make your connections with your business partners, what you want to show off, what you wear, you go to the mega church, whatever. And, and, and he, he just, he calls the churches and to, to preach a more rigorous gospel. And he doesn't mean moralistic. Yeah. What he means is a renunciation of self-centeredness, of egoism. It's, which, by the way, is the same message you'll hear in 12-step recovery. If yeah. you want to recover from your addictions, you need to, you need to lay down the, enthronement of your ego and challenge that to the cross and and so so that so on the one hand you've got Dostoevsky and this co-suffering love on the other hand you've got Kierkegaard and this rigorous call to following Jesus what they have in common there is the cross Mm -hmm. Um, um, coming to the cross receiving and not just crucifixion I mean the love of God revealed in the cross radical forgiveness self-giving love experience that but then also become an agent of that in this world and to me uh that seems to make much more sense than just like cutting your kite string and letting right off into a tree somewhere right no yeah that that resonates Uh, if you don't have grounding and something that gives life meaning uh then you are susceptible to all kinds of things and i think that's why that's why i think the evangelical church has gone off the rails in in, yeah. in america because <laughs> yeah. now now they they're in a trump cult and not all of them of course but a lot of them and uh that's what happens you got because the their their message their core message is not the the cross as you just just described it it's um it's political uh, power and control and, you know, show, showing that the Christians are right and everyone else is wrong. <laughs> it's like, Bizarre. Us <laughs> them. It's just yeah. crazy. I mean, I have seen it evolve. I, I, and I kept I keep asking myself, has it always been there? And this just brought it out or did it really get worse? And I, I haven't been able to answer that question, but in some ways it was always there because the theology behind, you know, the theology of uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism is to me, after you deconstruct, you're like, Oh my gosh, we were way, way, we were just barking up the wrong trees, man. Yes. Yes. So, so interesting. Um, So let's go back to Voltaire. There was something in the book that I read about Voltaire. Um, He saw something very particularly brazen persecution of heretics 
and the church. Do you remember that? And and what what was that about? Yeah. So Voltaire was alive at a time when when the Catholic Church was still uh, holding a lot of power um, in France, mm-hmm. and and what was going on is the Enlightenment had already been triggered. Oh, it's so relevant to right now. So you've got a progressive movement beginning that's more humane, more tolerant, more open. Right. And so things were beginning to loosen up. So what does the Catholic Church do? They double down. And then we see it right now. Let's say the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to double down now because you know what? Women are getting too free to preach. So -hmm. we're going to double down. And But with the Catholics, it it was much worse um, where... Uh, with the Huguenots and some of these other actually heretical groups, probably. But what's what's more heretical, believing something that's a bit off or torturing someone for yeah, it? Yeah, right, torturing them for it, yeah. <laughs> so what Voltaire did, um, he, under pseudonyms, he had like probably hundreds of pseudonyms. Oh, really? Um, he started the whole, he, he figured out a way to rig a lottery that made him independently wealthy. <laughs> so that he could generate a, um, a pamphleting movement. So he would write these pamphlets and mm-hmm. mass print them and send them all over France. And so he became like, he went viral. It, I mean, it's like the really the first time someone did this. Yeah. And, and so what he's doing in those pamphlets is, is he's critiquing that kind of, um, uh, that kind, the the corruption in the Catholic Church and their abuses, but and then on the side, he's also then de- uh, developing legal arguments so that he can become an advocate for these heretics who are being tortured. Okay. What's interesting about that then is that he becomes an advocate for religious tolerance, not just like and so let's say the tolerance of the heretics but also tolerance towards islam tolerance towards mm-hmm. jews well and that's where that's where he began to critique the 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 progressives who weren't tolerant of any religion yeah and so he's like whoa you guys this was supposed to be about defending human rights but in the name of defending human rights and attacking the catholic you know now you're just attacking faith everywhere you see it. And he goes, that's right. not it. So I really like his ability to put the brakes on. And uh, he, I quote him in the book on, on one of the pamphlets he does to the deconstructionists saying, I've done this better than all of you. Nobody <laughs> like I'm the, I'm the champion of this. And I'm telling you, you guys have become fundamentalists. Wow. Like it, he's not using all that language, but it's exactly, right. exactly what, he, what he was saying. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Now, so was Voltaire an atheist or what was he? Um, no, he would be more like a deist. Okay, um, so, he was a deist. And yet in that society, he probably was attending church and they didn't know he was writing the pamphlets. Oh, they didn't know. But, right. Yeah, he writes about his theology of God would be would be sort of like what becomes the civil religion that starts America. America didn't start with evangelicalism. It started right. with Thomas Jefferson and these deists. Yeah. Where you kind of believe that God is universe mm-hmm. and and that to be and, and that you just want to align yourself with natural law and and um, and have some reverence for that. So so he would not be a believer in in uh, in the Christian faith, but it's not it's also not quite true that he was an atheist. Right. I got gotcha. you. Right. More of a deist. Right. 
I think so. Yeah. Well, that yeah, it's very interesting because um, a and, deist who wants to defend faith. Weirdly, yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, the, the, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, you, if you go back into history, you're always fine. Oh, well, this is kind of like what we're going through now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so that's why I love to study history because you can get so much wisdom from people who have already gone through the same things. And frankly, are probably much smarter than we are because we're just so distracted by so much media and everything. We don't really read very much. We don't really study very much. We don't really try to learn things as much as some people in the past. At least it seems that way. But so, yeah, it's it's really good to to go back and learn these guys. Um, I love I love to go back and, and study the um, the first century uh, Jesus movement. Yeah and 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 learn how i mean basically um the first 200 years after jesus the christianity as we know it did not exist it was just it it was totally it was something completely different and so when when we make that assumption that oh that's what Christ, you know christianity started with jesus right then then we just read into the gospels or the first century our own you know, religion, we read into it rather than derive something from the original meaning of those of those narratives. Yep. So um, another person that you bring up in the book uh, is Simone Wheel. Is it Wheel or Weil? Um, her her niece told me that we pronounce it they like V-A-Y, which is a bit weird because that's they? neither totally French nor German, but yeah, right. Simone Bay. Yeah, but Simone you, Bay. you have to spell it W-E-I-L so people Right, so it. I'm really interested. You said something about her writings, narrative, her philosophy kind of saved your life. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, in 2008 when I was having my massive meltdown and I was so angry um, and, and dysfunctional, um, my friend Ron Dart said, I think you need to read her. And so, because what I was crashing on was the problem of evil. If God oh, right. is good, how can this right. be happening? Right. And why doesn't he stop it? And why doesn't he prevent it? And clearly, he's not. And so, what? <laughs> so, I'm in this double bind where I'm saying, like, if God can't, won't do something, I have to. Mm -hmm. And... When I try to do something, I can't. Yeah. So, and, and I'm paralyzed. I start reading her, and here's here's her in an elevator pitch. Um, she says, first of all, um, stop trying to rationalize the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity. And by affliction, she's using it technically to say non-redemptive suffering. Mm -hmm. That is, in this life. Not everything's a lesson. Sometimes a toddler drowns in their grandparents' pool. Yeah. That's not, there's no redemption there. Right. It's, yeah. Right. It's dead. And, and God didn't make that happen. It's not part of his plan. It's not some lesson you needed to learn. And if it right. is, he's evil. So she's yeah. riffing off of uh, Luther, another deconstructionist, who says if, if you, if you, a theology of glory is a theology where you try to, to, to harmonize the goodness of God and the affliction of man using human reason. We call right. those theodicies. Yep. Luther and Vey both say, when you do that, you will make God evil mm -hmm. or evil good. Stop it. 
Well, that's it. That's what the, uh, the the church taught me. Yeah. yeah. There's always a there's there's a purpose behind everything. So if something yeah. terrible happens, that was God. Whatever he needed that little toddler in heaven or whatever. Right. He, he needed another. Make your glory going to come later on and yeah. all that stuff. Right. So that's where I was at though in real life. I was really experiencing the anger around that. And yeah. so so Bay comes along and she says instead. Let them be a real contradiction, not a paradox, just a contradiction. And that mm -hmm. the, the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity between them is an infinite distance. But she says, um, let them act like, let the two act like pinchers that grab you and arrest you mm -hmm. from all your scheming and calculating. Just let them, let the problem of evil grab you, arrest you like, like, like tongs and, and throw you down because it does anyway. So there I am. I'm down. I'm, I'm in right. the abyss right. of darkness. And then she said, okay, now look up from the abyss at the cross. And then she says, um, the cross spans the distance. And every experience of affliction in human history lies between the two nail wounds in his hands. It's like a timeline of human history and passes right through his heart. Well, what is that? How does that help me? She says, okay, now ask yourself this. When I look at the cross, do I see human affliction? Yes. To the nth degree mm -hmm. as Christ not only suffers the worst kind of torture, but draws up every affliction into himself, mm -hmm. every bullet that's been fired, every bit of shrapnel, every sexual assault, all the darkness, it's drawn up and, and concentrated in him. And, and he, so he bears the sins and the sorrows of all human history, all humankind. But also then, in the same man, as you look at the cross, when you see his self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love, are you not also seeing the goodness of God to the nth degree? Right. They intersect in him right there and through his wounds. Then he, he separates the evil from the suffering. He purifies the suffering and he, and he, and it's poured out into the world as supernatural love that could actually heal. And then she says, and now look at your wounds. Your affliction is like a nail that is hammered right into his heart. Mm -hmm. And your, your affliction and his affliction become one. You are heart to heart with him. And in that, in that union, there's an exchange that can heal you, but also that can make you an agent of healing so that through your wounds, love flows into the world. Well, when I say it that way, it can still be a theodicy because it's an explanation. And she's like, that won't help you. It has to be an experience. And for me, it was. I, I had, oh, a, I had a, a, a direct experience through her voice of exactly what she's saying. And that's why for me now, even talking about like the DS about universe, it's like, no, I, I need the God I can trust. I need to see my wounds, the ones I've experienced and the ones I've inflicted. I need to see them in his hands. Mm -hmm. And then like Thomas, I can worship him. So that's kind of where, where I came through and it took years. I, yeah. I think that yeah, what you've touched on is something that, you know, um, in my experience, evangelicalism, they have a very simplistic view of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, 
and of course you understand penal substitutionary atonement that you've you've critiqued but you know it's just like oh jesus took our place and now that now we don't have to go to hell and now god god's anger wrath over sin is appeased etc and but but w there's so much to explore in the real meaning of the cross yeah yeah, yeah. and i think for me i haven't even gotten into it i now you've kind of piqued my interest i want to I've just touched the surface, let's say, and some of the ideas that I've come up with about, you know, be, Jesus being uh, the epitome of uh, non non retributive God, even taking yes. the pain of the torture of the cross and saying, Father, forgive them for they don't they don't know what they're doing yeah. and how amazing and radical that is. But but what you're saying is something even more and something more in depth. And and uh, I think uh, there's a mystery there that we haven't tapped into that you're getting from Simone Bay. That's really cool. Um, um, one of the things I wanted to go into as we kind of come to the last third of our interview is the the third part of your book is it's called Faith After Freefall. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we kind of like, Sometimes we kind of like think, oh, okay, well, yeah, you deconstruct, you become a progressive Christian or a liberal Christian or agnostic and just move on. But I mean, what, you know, maybe we're missing something. And, and when we just put things in just very neat little categories and say, well, pick which one you want to go to or whatever. So, um, you, you talk about, I mean, let me just read this question. Where does one go after their deconstruction of conservative Christianity? Why do you decry a one-size-fits-all approach? Hmm. Well, yeah, I would decry a one-size-fits-all approach just because you and I know about the complexities of the human condition and the, the, the many experiences of faith and even just that we're made with different temperaments, right? So um, the first part of your question, like where do we go with that? Um, I, I am now then, let's, I think you and I really agree on this strongly that, that um, Christianity as a brand in America is now so tainted that we, that it's difficult to identify it with Jesus. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So then where do we look? And right. so one of the answers I have for that is, well, actually, let's not just say, where do we look as a rhetorical question that where the answer is nowhere. I'm actually watching because um, the, the true faith, and I'm using true with a very small T, right? Yeah. <laughs> um but authentic faith has always been the minority report. So mm -hmm. I can just accept that. I am very comfortable with the idea that, in fact, there will be authentic Christianity wherever Christ is at work. And it will be some minority report. One suggestion I have is um, that Hebrew says, let us go outside the camp to where Jesus is. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a loaded statement. What's the camp? Well, the camp is this is this uh, civil religion with a thin veneer of Jesus painted on and kind of lacquered there. 
what is outside the camp? Who is outside the camp? So where I've encountered Christ in quite powerful ways, one place outside the camp is in the history of the martyrs. Mm -hmm. What is it that they were willing to die for? In fact, my great uncle, a Baptist minister in Czechoslovakia at the time, he was tortured for his faith. Wow. And, and like, I don't know a progressive who'd be willing to do that because maybe they're thin, they're, they're, their faith is too thin. So right. what is what thickens the story of the martyrs such that it's worth dying for? Or were they just mistaken? Well, they suffered outside the camp like Jesus did. But then also like the black voice in America. Um, Su uh, Susan Harper, I've lost her middle name because usually you need all three to get the right person if you Google uh, so, uh, Lisa, Lisa Sharon Harper, Lisa Sharon Harper. Okay. She challenged me on this. She said, if uh, it, that, that white supremacy is so dominant now in the church in America that mm. many people are leaving. But she says, if you leave the church because of white supremacy, without listening to the black voice, of the, the black church without yeah. investigating that their message, then leaving is still an act of white supremacy. Cause you've just admitted the church is a bunch of white guys. They're like, no, it's not. Yeah. Right. So I, I want to hear yeah. black preachers. I want to hear black. Right. Music, right. I want to hear black Cause they carry something um, very close to the cross. And it's called the lynching tree. I mean, yeah. they know this stuff. Right. They know right. the Exodus story out of slavery in real experience, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I would say, um, where else can we find community where we can be honest, where we can lament, where we're free to believe or not believe and yet experience transformation? And so that's where I'm, I'm very involved in the 12-step community. I just think they get it right. There's no heavy-handed dogma at all. Yep. They even hesitate to use the word God, but when they do, they, they say that the, whatever God is or isn't, think in terms of loving, caring, forgiving, responsive, and relational. I'm like, sign me up. Yeah, right, right, right. This is a community that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is often in the church basement, and that's a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's yeah, some that's examples. Yeah, those are good. Um, so uh, what, what, what you're touching on is, uh, uh, um, you know, not institutions, not denominations, not uh, formal uh, movements, but but just a, um, I don't know, maybe a philosophy or Leo Tolstoy call it a theory of life of, you know, this, what you just described, this this uh, compassion empathy but also uh challenging people to face their own egos and so forth and those think kinds of things are, are what really tr if you call it authentic faith really are all about and the, on top of that you just gave an example of the 12-step program you don't have to have church doctrine the nicene creed uh you know the, the evangelical statement of faith you don't have to have all that stuff to have a community like that and i would even add that you don't even have to have christianity i'm finding i'm in my next book i'm talking about examples 
in in Islam and Jewish community uh, in a, a more of a agnostic um, mindset that people actually doing what I call the path of peace or the way of Christ. And just so you can find it even outside the church is what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, in the Orthodox Church, which has just such perfect doctrine that it sent people to go kill one another in Ukraine. <laughs> like, go figure. Yeah, it's right. So Antichrist. And um, but uh, we do have this maxim, um, something like this: We know where we know where where grace is found, mm -hmm. but we don't know where it isn't found. In other words. I can come with confidence to receive the Eucharist on a Sunday morning. And I know that Christ is going to meet me there. I just know that uh, because he's gracious and I'm seeking him. And mm -hmm. that's a place where I know. So I know I'm going to receive grace there, but right. I don't know where I won't receive it. In other words, it's out there beyond our greenhouse mm -hmm. in the real world, wherever you have a grace exchange. Um, but I would say this, I, I would, I would say uh, I love my godfather's expression that it does need to look like, not doesn't need to, it is, grace is presence in communion. So um, beyond just Tolstoy's theory, Tolstoy had communities. And in fact, Gandhi was one of the first to start yeah, a Tolstoy right. community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this is a Hindu who's following the Jesus way deliberately through daily readings in the Sermon on the Mount, putting it into practice in a way that is together. So presence, I'm present to you, you're present to me. The two of us present together means Christ is present as well. And that's a, that's a communion. And yeah, so, right. um, so I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate for, you may leave a toxic community, go through a period of alienation or detox, and then be on the lookout for places where presence and communion can happen. Right. Um, and, and, and so that we do this together. Yeah. So what, I mean, you're touching on it, but one of my questions was what, what are the signposts or the guides that could help people point to what you're talking about, where to find this? Uh, where to find it is trickier because, like, I have people email me all the time about, like, I live in Cincinnati. Where should I go? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. So instead of, so, yeah, I think when you talk guideposts, that's really a, a good language to say, um, what would the, be the criteria uh, that I would be looking for in terms of identifying with a community? Mm -hmm. And right. so... Before I dive in, and I'm like, A, just don't dive in. Dip your toes in enough. Let's say, um, let's, I know some really great Episcopal churches. I mean, it's just so healthy. Then I'm like, but I don't know that's true everywhere. So yeah, right. Like, if you have right. one in your neighborhood, you might just right. ask the right. priest out for coffee. Right. That's dipping your toe in. And then what are the things I look for? I, I I, I think I won't give too easy of a bullet point list of look for this, look for this, look for this. Instead, I would say I've been praying the Beatitudes every day as best I can for over a decade now. The Beatitudes, in my mind, are a biography of the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They are Jesus' version of 
the fruit of the Spirit. They are his constitution for the kingdom of God. I mean, they're just like so, they're a forge of discernment so that like if you believed in, in the in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meek, who hunger for justice and mercy. And you like MAGA would not have deceived anybody right. who has installed that furnace into their hearts, right? So mm -hmm. I say, what? just ask yourself, as I look at this particular community, do I see the Beatitudes in action? And that's why... Yeah. I won't see it in many of our churches, and I right. do see it outside. Yes. I do have a – I want them to read my book, but like a good example of outside the church where you're going to see the kingdom of God is uh, Valerie Carr's book, K-A-U-R, Carr. Mm -hmm. She's a Sikh woman who's written a book called See No Stranger, and the subtitle is something about a revolution of love. And oh, you, it's the closest thing I've seen to the – Sermon on the Mount, since the Sermon on the Mount, probably. I mean, it's it's in the same kind of register as the best of Tolstoy, the best of Gandhi, the best of Martin mm -hmm. Luther King Jr. Right. In that flow, and it's just so faithful to the Jesus way, and she knows it, you know? And so she's a lot of churches invite her to come speak, even though right. Jesus is Sikh, or they pronounce it Sikh, but people get confused. Right, right. Sikh. So how do you spell her last name? Car K A U R, K A Valerie with lots of A's. All right, I'll check that out. Valerie Car. Valerie Car. Okay. So really? yeah, I'm looking for examples like that. I mean, um, she's a she's one of the right. best voices today, and you'll find right. her on, on right. On, and I, what I'm finding is there's people who, like you know, they may not they may not be that spiritual, but they've latched onto something. And what they've latched on to is restorative justice or restorative love. So, like, have you heard of Daryl Davis? No. Daryl Davis has converted, like, over 200 Ku Klux Klansmen. Wow. <laughs> just by befriending them and challenging them at the same time. Basically, it's a long, to make a long story short, I mean, if you, if you Google do his name you'll find a documentary about him and a book about him and so forth but so he's latched on to this this notion of like these people are lost they they hate me without knowing me and i'm going to go up to them and ask them why and i'm going to treat them with with respect and love and he's not coming from a christian perspective but he's latched on to that and he realized it works yeah and people actually do change yeah now some of them are beyond so you know he says but the you know he just people end up saying you know what i was wrong <laughs> it's like you're you're you know i, I have a connection with you i, I have to be wrong yeah I'm yeah yeah <laughs> you know anymore right so they change mm. it's amazing so anyways that's just one example but um these are these are really good i think this is the way christ works um like you said, you know you can find them in some places, but you you can find them in places that you wouldn't really expect. And and in in one sense, I found him in an organization called Rotary. Yeah. Where the the you know the the main motto is service over self. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you when you just serve people and you're inclusive of everyone and you and you have some of that 
beatitudes of attitude yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. in an organization in a group of people then you have christ and people aren't talking about christ they're just talking about serving others it's really amazing yes so um anyways one final question i had was i know you i'm not sure where you're at now but i know you've talked about you've been in the orthodox eastern orthodox tradition for a while i mean is have you have you found what have you found in Eastern Orthodox tradition and and are you still in that where 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 are you now? Yeah, so I um first of all I found a mentor who is an old monk who looks like Gandalf, right, Lazar. <laughs> and and so my relationship to Eastern Orthodoxy began with that friendship over the course of ten years, and really it was a kind of long catechism where he walked me out of every retributive image of God. Um, now, there's 350 million Orthodox in the world, ranging from progressive to fundamentalist, from nominal to deeply devout, um, from from rationalistic to charismatic. You know, you got the whole, it's a big church, right? right. <laughs> so I found the right guy. And so he walked me out of some of the um, the doctrines of retribution, penal substitution, and eternal right. conscious torment specifically. Right. And and what he showed me was that the Orthodox Church makes space for that. You won't if you if anybody in the Orthodox Church calls you a heretic, it's because it's not because they're more Orthodox than you. It's it, maybe they're the problem, you know. Yes. But formally, formally. Um, it's you're totally in bounds with rejecting retribution. In fact, yeah. the Archbishop of Canada said, God is mercy only. So I had 10 years of mentoring from him around that using the church fathers. So that's the second thing, relationship with him and then their stewardship of the first Christians. So the early church fathers who would had a heart for justice, a heart for compassion, who, who saw the gospel as healing, not as some transaction. Right. Um, so he introduced me to the fathers and, and now I'm like, Oh, this is so much healthier than at least the ones we pick. And you pick and choose, but the, the most beautiful, clearest stream of that feels really good to me. And I, and I love those guys, um, especially Macrina, uh, uh, a woman teacher from, right. You know, and then, and then, um, but 10 years into that, he said, some of the healing you're looking for is not found in theology and reading. It's, it is in the worship. Um, and so I, I was chrismated. And what the worship does for me is because my nervous system was damaged through my meltdown and because of revivalism, <laughs> I can now go to church and when I can't pray, the prayers of the people carry me. And unlike my Baptist upbringing where the service was an act of sensory deprivation, <laughs> there's colors and smoke and, and icons and candles. And, and, and so it's very sensual in that sense. Right. right. And I'm also, I can't sit still in a congregation very well. So, there's only chairs around the perimeter so I can move around and go in and out as needed. And so, right, right. so that plus the predictability of is God going to show up? He always shows up. 
How many yeah. will come forward? All of us. <laughs> it's it's the, called the Eucharist. So so right. the the uh, the predictability helped my nervous system, and then um, just the the, rep the repetitive refrain that God is merciful. We say mercy or merciful 154 times in two hours every wow. Sunday. That's wow. like more than twice a minute. You're hearing mercy. He's That's a merciful. The theme of mercy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that was that's been very healing. Um, and then we're our group is large, it's an immigrant community. I have a heart for immigrants, newcomers, mm -hmm. we call them here. Um, but I'm also allowed to struggle. So I wanna, you know, I wanna say I am I am opposed to male-only priesthood. I think that's terrible. Yeah. And I have no control over it. But also, you know, I'm married to a woman who's a pastor of a little progressive church. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's okay then. And but if someone is an egalitarian, I don't recommend it. the Eastern Orthodox Church. You should go to try the Episcopal if you want liturgy. Right. Or no, I yeah, I understand what you're saying. I I, I found a lot of the uh, Eastern Orthodox theology to be right on, but then I'm like, why are they, you know, still hung up on this? I don't know. All these church, you know, you practices. Now you say a good reason is because it's it it helps people, but 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 then they've also got the you know, the dog dogmatic side. Oh, you can't have a women woman pastor or priest or something. And it's like yeah. I I just can't get over that. Well, there's really. reasons, but the reasons aren't very good anymore. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> They're not enough for me, so I I, yeah. I struggle with that publicly yeah, right one of my solutions is i you know i wouldn't be asked anyway let's be fair but i don't think i want to rise higher in the orthodox church than a woman can yeah having said that the dominant voice in our church services is a woman who leads the, who leads the chanters like we hear more from her than we do from the priest so it's uh, not uh, quite yeah it's not quite fair to say right like women aren't silent in our church. They're certainly not silent, right? They just don't have the they have can't have the same titles as men. Yeah. So, so this is very interesting. I'm so glad uh, we had a chance to talk, Brad. Um, the The book mostly we're talking about today, folks, is Out of the Embers: Faith After the Great Deconstruction. So, for people who are deconstructing conservative Christianity and other brands of faith. Uh, um, this book is going to be really valuable for you to help you um, open, up, open up your mind of thinking in new ways and helping you to rebuild something that is more authentic. So, Brad, thanks for coming on the Spiritual Brew Pub. And um, we'll have to get together another time and have a have that another one of those beers. Yeah, yeah this will require a pint or two. Yeah. I'm so grateful, Michael. I appreciate your hospitality today. Right. So uh, next time you're in Seattle uh, or next time I'm in BC, maybe we'll, we'll connect. So, folks, thanks for uh, tuning in to the Spiritual Brew Pub uh, again. And um, uh, check out Brad's book. Uh, I, I think you can go to bradjerzak.com, right, to find out all about you. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. All right. So, okay, folks, uh, uh, we'll be signing off until the next time. Enjoy responsibly.